Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm your host, J.M. Prater, and I'm joined by... Patrick, hey, everybody. And we're also joined by special guest... Robin in the United Kingdom. At 2 a.m. in the morning. 2.25 a.m. in the morning, to be exact. It's very dark over here. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, Robin. Hey, it's my pleasure. Appropriately, it's raining outside. I think, you, you know, too. discussing Blade Runner, it's raining. You know, that's, that's just how it should be. It's the middle of yeah. the night. You're on the precipice of a disintegrating political system. You know, there's <laughs> there's there's angst in the air, and it's uh it's dark. One more it's got to be 2019, has <laughs> And uh, Dan can't join us to this evening because he is just driving home from the airport from the Canary Islands. Uh, so he's uh, been on a little bit of a vacation, but uh, he'll be back with us on our next episode. So our Secret Cinema episode was the last episode we thought we would release before our new series began, which is a 700-layer cake, The Cold of Blade Runner, which we've announced, we're really excited about. But there's been some... It's been a while, actually, since we've uh, recorded an episode together. Uh, we've just had a lot going on. We've had a lot of episodes in the wings waiting that we've been releasing, as you guys have, have seen or heard. Um, but we really felt it was uh, apropos to record an episode just kind of talking about... Being in the banner year, uh, the the year that Blade Runner is set, and what that means, and where the world is, as opposed to the world that was presented to us. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that uh, obviously in 1982, when when Blade Runner was released, they had a very specific idea of where the world might be. Um, and I don't know if really, actually, I don't know. Maybe you guys do. I don't know if the information, if the that they thought, okay, this is going to be the world in 2019. If they had some like good, like uh, scholarly information, like, oh, this is probably where the world is headed. I don't really know. Um, you mean but, like, like consulting with futurists and things like that? Yeah. Yeah. And I know a lot of times uh, on science fiction films, people do consult with futurists and they can say, they say, Hey, these are the trends. This, this is what might be possible. And I know like even in the past, 10 years, let's say, there's been a rise of very dystopian um, set science fiction films. They're all in this dystopia, and really Blade Runner was the first uh, iteration of that. Um, So it's an interesting time to be alive and kind of uh, compare and contrast. Well, I would say, I think one person who sort of would be considered a futurist in a lot of ways is Sid Mead. Um, And and I know he was really integral to the production of it, but it's also worth remembering that you know the, the novel upon which the film was based came out in 68 um and so there's obvious deviations between the novel and the film that you know we, we won't get into here necessarily but it's interesting to think about um what they chose to to depict as the future in 1982 and uh and sort of what's come out of that and um and also and robin i'll let you speak to this because i know you probably know more about it than i do um, there, I think that they they made conscious decisions to have a, sort of a separate timeline, so that there's a separate universe in which Blade Runner could kind of grow. Um, that wouldn't be tied to the realities of the world, but would kind of reflect it like a dirty mirror in some ways. But um, what do you think about that, Robin? My thought is that uh, Blade Runner the film is very much set um, 
against the context of the 60s, the 70s and the 80s. So when they're making Blade Runner in 1982, um, there has been this story of decline. And it's a story of decline which you see in America and it's a story of decline you see in Western Europe and in the United Kingdom. Um, and so it's a very different world to the world of 1968 in the sense that in 68, Philip K. Dick is kind of an outlier um, in imagining this dystopian future because, you know, the, the the future is bright in 68, whereas the future is really, really quite dark in 1982 because of this kind of 30-year history of decline um, or whatever. So that would be my thought uh, in terms of, of what the general um, background or what the general thoughts of futurology are in the early 80s. In the early 80s, it, it, the, the future is old um, as... Um, as um, Rutger Hauer says, the future is old. The future is not beautiful and new and sparkling. And, and it's not the future of um, the discovery of 2001. This is a kind of grimy future, a future where everything's old and nothing really works and where hope has been defeated, as it were. So that would be my general thought about what, what the future they're imagining in 1982 and why they're imagining it. I would say, like, the biggest thing that I noticed myself, um, I mean, even just on a, on a really, as I watch 2019 you see you know there's obviously there's this subset of people there's everyone who's kind of on earth and then there's the the advertisements for the off-world colonies you know you can come off world begin again all of those th things that we've heard um but really that speaks to the class system and uh this big divide between rich and poor if you're poor you stay if you're rich you leave um those that's kind of hit up in the film elysium um, where there's, you know, you have all of these essentially rich people living in the sky um, in complete paradise, and then you have these poor people left on Earth in dirty, grimy, uh, unwelk or unkept conditions, and everyone's, you know, dying or they have diseases or all of these things. And today, in today's society, really, I kind of see that in some ways, um, where there this divide between rich and poor is just growing, 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 growing. And what the poor have access to, as opposed to what the rich have access to, and who controls, um, who controls that, um, which you know wh whether it's the one percent, and then you know just all of those arguments, they they seem very um, telling and uh, urgent to me. It's also it's interesting because I, th I think depending on whether you're looking at it from like an American lens or from a, a you know a Western European lens, the experience that you're living through in 1982 uh, has some interesting similarities and some interesting differences. I was thinking, you know, so, so in the U S you had, you know, Reagan who was sort of, um, had, had recently been elected on this platform of sort of economic, uh, you know, what was kind of trumpeted as economic populism, but what was really this, you know, trickle down thing that we talk about a lot, which was really pro capitalist. It was sort of anti Soviet. Um, the whole idea was that, you know, as Jamie was saying, you can basically reach the stars through your, you know, ability to, to earn income and to, and to wield power in society. So there was, there was that happening, but there was also in the U S a severe uh, recession going on. So there was a lot of economic uncertainty. And I think that, um, when you look at stuff, but also it's funny because 1982 was also the year that, you know, ET came out and that was one of the biggest box office hits of the year. Um, you know, I think we were kind of looking at it in, in different ways, and it's it's interesting. Some things came out really sort of um, dystopian, like Blade Runner, and some things were very optimistic. And I think that that crossroads is sort of in popular culture in the early '80s, but it's also in uh, in entertainment and also in politics too. 
And I think it's worth pointing out that the um, the kind of economic decline and economic malaise, which is really hitting America and really hitting the UK in 1981 and 1982, is also a feature of the Soviet Union at this point. Um, so there is an idea that it's not the West which is in decline, but the East is in decline as well. The whole world is in decline. Um, and and again, that is really the world of Blade Runner. It's a world in which, um, yeah, in which things are running down. living in you know the reality of 2019 uh we don't have flying cars although there's you know you can click on any you know you can go on facebook or social media and see companies about to release flying cars um many different iterations of flying cars uh, it's just kind of like the peripheral type of thing um obviously we don't have replicants um we were talking earlier that there are, you know I, I know in the last like year or two there was uh that's a uh, robot, I want to call her uh, Sophia, and I think, I don't know what country that was, but they gave her citizenship. There was a discussion that we even had on the show on whether Sophia is... Wasn't it Saudi Arabia? Is it Saudi I think Arabia? It was Saudi, I think it was Saudi Arabia. Which is just it, it strange. It seems so strange to me. I, I'm, yeah. you know, I'm going to look that up while we're talking. Hang on. They're going to force uh, Sophia to wear a, uh, a burqa. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but there are, I, I you know, the, the compare... The comparisons are really there. I mean, in terms of this, certainly reflective in our governments, um, what's going on in our governments, it just seems like a mess. Um, the you know the people who are in power and their their administrations, it's just it seems like they don't know what they're doing, and it seems like they're taking parts of their con- the countries down with them. Um, there's this sense of hopelessness, and I'm not saying that I have this sense of hopelessness, but or maybe it's not a sense of hopelessness. It's just this this uh, uncertainty, this idea of uncertainty. And I feel like in Blade Runner, uh, we see those that uncertainty um, brought to life, where the when we you know when Deckard is out in the world. And you see him kind of walking on the streets. There's a lot going on there. There's a lot of trade. There's a lot of bartering. There's a lot of all sorts of things going on on the streets. Um, and there's this sense of everyone's kind of entertaining themselves into oblivion, whether that's at Taffy's Bar, really entertainment where, you know, you can buy, you can buy any synthetic, whatever you want, where the the lower class has really kind of surrendered their, their power uh, and exchanged it for entertainment. And, you know, Obviously, this would be another discussion, but you see that really brought to life in 2049. But in 2019, we're kind of on that on that path. But there's also, you know, um, a lot of uh, I, I think about uh, I, I know that we're talking about 2019, but I, I can't think I can't help to think about the film Wally. And when they go on the ship and you see all of these humans sitting in chairs and with screens in front of their faces because no one's talking. Um, and it's the 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 sense that art is imitating life. And I don't know if uh, life is imitating art 
or if life is just imitating, well, these, this is what happens when you deplete the earth of its resources. This is what happens when you elect the wrong people into power. This is what happens when you treat people, you know, uh, a specific group of people like they are, you know, whether it's immigrants right now, which is the thing, or the LGBT community. This is what happens when you treat them like garbage. Um, this is, you know, and then you elect people who feel the same way, and um, it just kind of, it's this, it, it creates this stew of, dystopia Tyrell really did a job on Rachel right down to a snapshot of a mother she never had a daughter she never was replicants weren't supposed to have feelings neither were Blade Runners what the hell was happening to me I really love the idea that people are entertaining themselves to death as it were um, because that's I mean because Blade Runner is lots of different things and there are lots of different influences going on there. And that really reminds me of Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, in which, um, which is, you know, one of the two classic dystopias of the 20th century or two of the, one of the two classic kind of written dystopias of the 20th century where um, people are, are addicted to soma and they're using kind of sex as a as a narcotic to kind of to, to drown out everything else, as it were. Um, and one of the things I do like about one of the things I absolutely adore about Blade Runner is that the the kind of aesthetics are or the aesthetics of the street level are kind of like pop art aesthetics. Um, in that the the only kind of art form you see on the streets are the are the big logos of of corporations and our adverts and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, so I think part of the hopelessness of Blade Runner is that all you ever really see surrounding the characters is this kind of pop art world of advertising, um, which again, I think, you know, really supports what Jamie was saying about Blade Runner being a place where people are kind of entertaining themselves to death as it were. Yeah, I, and I think um, there's a couple things I, I want to touch on in there. One, I just want to clarify, it was Saudi Arabia that Sophia was given, granted citizenship to, which is just so, <laughs> so fucked up uh, on many levels. I just want to point that out. Um, <clears throat> the idea, Robin, you're talking about with um, advertising, really determining the like the aesthetic of that world and being basically what constitutes art in that society, I think is fascinating. And I think it's a good example of something that you see a lot in Blade Runner and especially in, in the film is um, <clears throat> these sort of parallel technologies to things that we recognize in our everyday lives. So whereas in the Los Angeles of 2019 and Blade Runner, um, advertising is a very external thing that's just sort of everywhere, and it's uh, it's oppressive and it's ever-present, um, sort of like you see in, in something like Minority Report. You know, it's just this just extremely sort of uh, invasive thing, but it's in the physical environment, right? It's billboards, it's giant, um, you know, dioramas and things like that. Um, in, in the real 2019, I, I can, as somebody who is constantly having to turn on ad blockers every other minute, you know, I can attest to the fact that the real world is like that. It's, it's oppressively adverti advertisement driven. And that whole like, notion of, you know, hypercapitalism is definitely playing itself out in a world where we have individualized, um, advertising through cookies and through tracking and privacy breaches and things like that. And we're bombarded every day with these reinforcements of what the world wants us to think we want. And it does really huge things to the ways in which we perceive ourselves in the ways in which we perceive ourselves um, in the world in which we operate. And I think it's interesting. I think the effects of that advertisement-driven society in Blade Runner 
are probably very similar to the effects of the advertisement-driven society in our current condition, but it's just a matter of whether or not it's external, like a billboard, or internal, or semi-internal, like a phone or a podcast or something. Um, I also want to point out, um, it, you, you brought up uh, the Huxley book, which is a great parallel, too. My favorite novel of all time, Infinite Jest, takes its title from a, an object in the film that is literally um, a deadly entertainment. It's funny. It was. It was. Have you read it, Robin? No, I haven't. But go on, tell me. Oh man, oh, it's it's it, it really truly changed my life. Um, I'm trying to get Jamie to read it too. But basically, the idea in the book it was written in 1997 by David Foster Wallace, who was an American author who died a few years ago. Um, and it concerns a society where you get these things called cartridges, where you can basically just choose any type of entertainment you want, and you can have instant access to it. And instead of being like a Netflix or a streaming service because obviously it didn't exist in, in the late 90s. Um, it's a physical cartridge, but the idea is it's like an instant delivery system, and you can just sort of sit there for hours and hours and hours, and that's what happens is just, you know, you sit there and you just watch what comes up next on your queue, um, and people, you know, lose their jobs and lose their marriages, and actually the world falls apart in some ways, and, and we, we have a dystopian future where there's um, this, like, in, it, I don't want to give too much away, but there's like a, a, a whole region of the United States that's just called the Great Concavity, where everybody's basically just firing their garbage into it. And it's just like, it's just this like wonderful dystopia. And um, in the midst of that comes this tape, this cartridge called infinite jest, which is something that's so perfectly entertaining. It's actually deadly because you, it becomes impossible to break yourself away from it. Um, And so, so, you know, it's, it almost starts like a murder mystery novel where you have, um, Yeah. Right, and and it's 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 so popular because it's the most it's the most entertaining thing you can see, and people don't eat and they don't sleep and they just basically stay up until they die, and um, it's interesting like how that that is so accurate now, and it was so accurate in the time Blade Runner was written and so accurate in the time all this all this Huxley was writing Brave New World, we are so driven by our compulsions, you know, we're so yeah, driven yeah. by our need to escape that we start to. Uh, not realize the problems that are real you know we start to sort of just live in a sort of imagined world and just like at the at the end of wally which is another masterpiece um you know we start living a, essentially a non-physicalized existence and i think what's interesting in blade runner another example of, of kind of a parallel technology or lifestyle thing um of course is the esper which is you know i, I mean I, I just before we started recording i was talking to my amazon device to tell it to you know dim the lights and things like that and I'm sitting here thinking, like, we're totally living in that environment, but, you know, whereas you have the sort of retrofitted future aesthetic of, of the S-word machine, you know, now it's just a voice-activated consumer device, but it's the same thing, you know? And the ways that uh, characters in Blade Runner are interacting with their world and their technology, I think, are eerily similar to the ways in which we do that. It just might look a little different from the outside. Stop. Track. 45 right. Stop. Center and stop. The the infinite jest reminds me of did you two ever see the Max Hedrum movie? No. Um, I I don't I know saw if the show a, but not the movie. So the movie is kind of like the backstory to the character of Max Hedrum and the reason I mention it is it was heavily influenced by Blade Runner. And because of the age I am, I saw the Max Hedron movie before I saw Blade Runner. So really, my first experience of the Blade Runner aesthetic was watching the Max Hedron movie. Uh, but without, again, wanting to give too much away, the Max Hedron movie is based on the conceit of an advert that kills you. 
or rather an advert that can kill you. And the idea is that the, the, the advertisers are trying to compress more and more information into um, a shorter and shorter span, a shorter and shorter span of time, so that people don't have time to turn over the channels between, you know, during the advert breaks, because the advert breaks are now so short. Um, and the idea is that by firing so much information into the human brain as, at this rate, it's killing people. Um, so yeah, so and, and my thoughts about the Max Hedron movie is that it's it's kind of whereas Blade Runner does these things subtly and does them beautifully, and these are all kind of the background, the background texture of the world. What the Max Hedron movie did was it kind of brought them all into the foreground and made the plot about that those kind of those kind of um, issues. Um, but yeah, like I say. Um, it's um, it, I, the two things were always mixed together in my head. And the other thing I'd say about adverts is, of course, it's worth bearing in mind Ridley Scott did a lot of work in adverts, advertising. Um, and therefore, I think he understood the aesthetic. And around the time he did Blade Runner, he did in Britain, I don't know if you've seen them, he did two or three adverts for Barclays Bank. And they are all set in the Blade Runner universe. And some of the amazing neons, kind of, I want to use the word sculptures, I don't know what the word you would use for them. But some of the neon that was designed for Blade Runner appears in these adverts. And like I say, it's, it's all set in that kind of universe. So it's, it's strange that Blade Runner, which kind of has this critique of, critique of advertising running in the background, then became the kind of aesthetic that was used by advertisers. And it's funny because it's clearly beautiful. You know, when, when you see when you see that dystopian Los Angeles, like that, that aesthetic is so, it makes such an impression visually that um, I think we're attracted to it, even though we're aware of what a terrible reality it represents, you know? Um, and I think that's a really, a really fascinating aspect of it. What what I find is interesting, like with what you're saying in terms of it being beautiful, I I, I, I find myself thinking quite a bit about what about the original Blade Runner film that entices me. Characters aside, kind of the who, are we human? We've discussed all those things that we've discussed aside. Like as I've read, people talk about the atmosphere of Blade Runner. Um, and you know how in love with that they are, and then I think about it, and I think about kind of Deckard or whatever character kind of moving through, uh, like I said earlier, to kind of uh, the just kind of the exterior and interior uh, set pieces, and uh, what what's the word I'm looking for? Like marketplace, essentially, uh, of downtown Los Angeles. There's this beautiful nostalgia to it. Um, Blade, Blade Runner really has this. Uh, this feel where it's not it doesn't feel necessarily 80s to me i mean i'll I'll give i'll give you that deckard's outfit is sort of 80s but there's uh, a decided 1940s feel a kind of a mishmash of cultures whether you know you see kind of uh, asian cultures you know the harry krishnas you see i would say this kind of cocktail of of all these cultures that kind of have merged on um on uh, Los Angeles and why we look at th- why there's a comfort to it. There's this comforting quality. I think part of that comfort comes from the music where we have this heavy, very heavy synth based music. That's very melodic. Um, and it's kind of painting a picture, but my questions have been, why is this, from, why does this feel like home? Why does this atmosphere that really isn't welcoming? Why does it feel welcoming? Why do we feel good when we're, immersed you know on our big screens in in the world of the original blade runner film and that's something that i'm pondering i don't really have an answer for that but i know that um as we kind of continue 
our own kind of culture or world culture, where we're at in terms of even in, in entertainment, what's happening in entertainment, everything's reverting back. Everything is nostalgia. Everything is, hey, let's make a sequel to this film we made 35 years ago. Hey, let's let's bring back this Magnum PI. Let's bring back Knight Rider. Let's let's bring back all of these shows. Let's do Stranger Things, which reminds us of E.T. Like this this deep like uh, love for nostalgia, where and it almost keeps human culture stagnant. And this wasn't the case 20 years ago. And I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but I I I'm just fascinated with. Uh, where the world is going and our love for nostalgia, um, where we're so kind of in love with the past, we've forgotten about the future. And I feel like that's what you see in Blade Runner, where these people who are kind of, who've kind of let go, they've let go to party, to have fun, to watch their shows, to do their thing. And it really reflects what we're going, you know, what's going on today in terms of we can't get enough shows on Netflix. We'll watch them in two days. Now what? Now what? Now we can't wait. Now what? Oftentimes I'll tune into Twitter and Twitter for me is like a war zone. It's like bomb, bomb going off, bomb going off, bomb going off. And I turn it off and I go to Facebook and I go into my fan groups and I'm like, oh, it's like it's not even happening. I'd rather stay here. Um, and I feel like that's a little bit representative of sort of what we're seeing in Blade Runner. And then you see the character of Decker who's kind of in this haze of life. He's just kind of coasting by. And I feel like what he's doing is what so many of us are starting to do. I, I completely get what you're saying about, um, yeah, about Blade Runner being this kind of, it's nostalgic because in a sense they've given up on the future. Um, yeah, the future isn't what it used to be kind of thing. Um, and I, yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, I, I'm really interested in what you said about social media because when I was thinking about this and thinking about how the 2019 that we inhabit is different from the 2019 that Ridley Scott imagined. I think one of the things that strikes me about today is just the anger that I encounter all the time um, from people who disagree with each other profoundly in terms of, uh, in terms of politics or in terms of kind of like um, the, the culture wars, for want of a better word, that are going on. And as you say, Deckard is just co is coasting. And there is no anger, really, in Blade Runner, except perhaps with Roy Batty and except perhaps with the replicants. But the human characters and the characters that think they are human, they're kind of just, they're just, um, yeah, they're coasting. They're, they're resigned, I think, is the word that kind of comes to my mind, rather than being all consumed by the anger, which seems to be such an important part of, mod, of, 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 20, of the 2019 that I'm living in. You know what's so weird? I'm thinking, it, I feel like if... I, I would not have expected us to go as a society in the direction that we've gone in. And I think it's because, and, and I mean in, in the last 10 years, because I feel like when, as smartphones became more prevalent and we, we had kind of the web 2.0 revolution and social media became so ever present, um, I sort of, I sort of, I, I was sucked into this idea that we were all going to be drawn sort of like inexorably into ourselves and into our own our own personal experience of the world and we were going to stop talking kind of like the Wally thing we were talking about. But what's funny is that we're actually engaging more than ever. It's just in, in a horrible way a lot of the time, but we're, we're actually, um, I mean, we're, we're, we're a, a smaller world than we've ever been, you know, like we're able, I mean, you know, look at us, we're, we're talking on three different, completely different time zones right now. Um, and we're having a very nice conversation, but a lot of people do that on the internet. Basically just, they get on there and they yell at each other for having differing beliefs and, um, but they are engaging, which is interesting. So that's just, I'm just sort of thinking out loud. I feel like I, I would have thought that we would be more insular now 
and maybe in some ways we are, but in some ways we're we're more in each other's faces than ever, you know. And where that leads, who knows? But it's it's interesting to think about. Yes, and I think one of the things again, thinking about tonight, um, or thinking about the topic we're discussing tonight, that occurred to me is that the loneliness of of our 2019 is very different from the loneliness of Blade Runner, because my general thoughts about Blade Runner is that. Deckard is living a very lonely life. He's living. He's he's kind of isolated, in a in a, in what would strike me as being quite an old-fashioned way, whereas I think people today, from what I can pick up on, they are isolated, but they're also on Twitter and they're isolated, and they're also on Facebook. So there's a kind of weird contradiction between the isolation of of our world, um, which is an isolation which has, which is in some sense supported by social media or modified by social media and Deckard's isolation because as far as we as far as we can see in the film the only kind of um, you know social media technology he's got is something is a video phone um, which is kind of not a million miles away from the video phone they were imagining into the film 2001 and it's not a million miles away from the kind of phone technology that they were really using in 1982 so it's a very different kind of social media landscape to the one that we inhabit today well I mean I, I eventually I want to kind of get into sort of the big the big topic and this is a topic that i think blade runner hit upon but then you have another film like children of men um but really kind of the i, I don't know if i want to get into it right now but eventually um but I, I what in terms of like social media and the isolation which you were talking about robin and also patrick um you do kind of sense this this sense of loneliness from deckard and even in the city um you know i just i'll never you know Chris walking down the street with that music. I mean, she's alone. Um, she's on a mission, she, you know, but there's this sense of loneliness in this big, huge city with, with thousands of people. My point that I'm trying to make is even like on social media, like for even speaking for myself, you know, I am a very, I'm in a very precarious time in my life. I've been unemployed for going on seven months. Um, I'm completely connected um, and, um, and wired in. Um, with everybody and I talk with people day in and day out, but I live, I, but you know, aside from my family, I don't see anybody, uh, outside of that, um, on a day to day basis, unless it's like the weekend or, you know, I, I go to a friend's church every Sunday just to kind of get out of the house. Um, so I think that that sense of isolation where you're a part of something, but you, it's like being on Twitter where, yeah, you have a Twitter account and you're tweeting and there's hundreds of thousands or millions of people and, no one sees that because you're not important, you know, so it can play into the isolation. But I also think what's happening is that that sense of feeling isolated and yes, people are engaging, but what's happening is at least in my perspective, is there's something that's falling away from that engagement. And we, we see it in fan communities. This is something that me and Patrick have talked up, talked about before at length, this kind of lack of empathy where they don't think that they're talking to a person, they're talking to text and they're outraged at text. And they're, um, and so it's just this idea that the empathy is falling away, which is sort of a main theme in Blade Runner is, you know, they have an empathy test to see how these replicants are, are responding. And if they're not responding with empathy, then that tells you that they're, uh, a replicant, but really the 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 way society is going, especially the class system and the way that we engage on social media is our empathy is crumbling. I mean, and it, it is nowhere um, more evident than the leader of America right now when the, there's this just this lack of empathy from someone who's always had money, 
millionaire, billionaire, whatever. Um, but that you just don't see it on that level. You see it um, the way people, you know, who have a point to make on social media instead of saying, oh, hey, yeah, this interesting point. It's jugular. Um, it's it's uh, relentless. It's without mercy. It's without grace. And uh, for me, I, I think that in 2019, that's the beginnings of the crumbling of that society in Blade Runner. Like, it, you're kind of seeing a society without empathy. You're seeing a society that that has kind of lost their empathy. And the people who have the empathy are the replicants, it, it appears. You know, you know, or that's that's the argument being made, is that Roy Batty has empathy. But in our real world, I, I really feel like that's, that's kind of the elephant in the room that uh, we touched upon this even in a discussion about a video game uh, that we had a roundtable a few days ago, um, where you see these horrible, you know, people, Patrick's gotten death threats because of his opinions. It's this idea that, well, I'm not responding to a person, I'm responding to text. I'm responding to a profile, um, that we're losing our empathy. And, and when we lose our empathy, we lose our humanity. And I, I feel like that's kind of, if there's a, if there's a mirror between 2019, and there's another mirror that I want to talk about eventually, but if there's a, a the big mirror right now is our lack of empathy and kind of where that's leading us as a, as a, as a, a world, as a world society. I'm just thinking that there's a really interesting parallel there, Jamie, with what we see in, in the film in 2019, which is the sense of public isolation, you know? When we see Deckard, he... I mean, I mean for one thing, there there are so many dialects, and you have these, these pidgin languages in the city-speak. It's like people aren't even able to actually talk to each other. And Deckard is in the midst of so many people that he's, he's inundated with them. You know, it's like some, a situation where I think a lot of people would feel sort of uh, like uh, agoraphobic. Um, and yet he's alone. He's completely alone. He's not talking to anybody. He's just putting in an, an order for noodles and kind of hoping nobody bothers him. And he's surrounded by people. And I think we find ourselves doing that in the age of social media. We are surrounded by people, but we're not listening to each other. We're not actually communicating a lot of the time outside of our tribe. Um, one other thing I wanted to kind of touch on briefly is, um, you know, I, I feel like a theme that's kind of emerging in this conversation is these parallel tracks between things that are happening in Blade Runner and things that are happening in, in our world and how it kind of looks different. Um, but it's the same kind of thematic thing going on. And I think that's just another example of that. I, I think, um, you know, instead of, for example, flying cars, you know, we're in an era of, of autonomous vehicles. We're on the precipice of that. Um, instead of, you know, video phones or, you know, Esper devices, we have smartphones and social networks. Um, and instead of, uh, you know, replicants, we have, you know, gene therapy. But at the end of the day, we're, we're basically, we're, we're approximating a lot of the things going on in Blade Runner because those needs are in society. Like, th that's that's the deeper reality, is that, like, we are fundamentally lonely as creatures. Uh, we are afraid of our own deaths and our own mortality, and, and our society is kind of engineered to allow us to forget that. And uh, we are seeking out entertainment so that we feel less lonely. And uh, in the absence of human relationships, uh, which a, a lot of people, I think, um, don't have enough of in their lives, we form relationships with our entertainment. 
And, um, and so, like, the, so I think part of why a film like Blade Runner or a film even like, you know, Metropolis is so powerful is because it speaks to deeper human needs that don't go anywhere. Like, those are evergreen, you know? We will always be battling with those ideas. Um, and the apparatus through which we talk about them can change based on whatever sort of future we want to imagine or we want to represent in our art. But at the end of the day, the, the reality is still there. Like, we are fundamentally battling, we're rattling the cage against our own impending deaths, you know? Yes, and it's wonderful that in Blade Runner that the only people who really see that are the replicants. Because they are the ones who are not anesthetized by the advertising and by the promise of an offer of, a, of an offer of paradise or, you know, or just getting by eating sushi. The people who are asking the really big questions are particularly the person I consider to be Blade Runner's philosopher king, Roy Batty. Um, yeah, it is amazing that the humans have become dehumanized and the replicants are, are, are the ones who are looking like they're going to become more human than humans. So who do you think, who, what would be the parallel in our society, Robin, to that situation? Um, I think it was kind of more or less what Jamie was saying, in that one of the trends, one of the sociological trends of recent years is that people, particularly in Britain and particularly in America, are becoming less and less empathetic towards each other. And the higher you go up the social scale, it seems to me, the more that that is a problem. Um, it seems to me that um, the modern economy requires people who are very, very good at technical tasks, um, which require them, in a sense, to, uh, well, technical tasks which are very delimited, which require them to be very focused on very small things, rather than seeing the big picture and rather than taking into account the kind of social consequences of what they do. So the society that we've built rewards exactly the kind of anti-social, anti-empathetic um, traits that, you know, that when we step back from it, we would think would be a bad thing. And I find something that's that's so frustrating about that, that situation is that a lot of the time we end up inadvertently rewarding, like, sociopathic behavior, like doing something, especially on social media, that's very publicly humiliating and terrible because we talk about it so much that it becomes, it, be, it sort of becomes reality, you know? Like, we allow ourselves to, um, to make it, to make it, we, we normalize these things um, just simply by talking about them and by acknowledging their presence. And whereas... You know, 40 years ago, a lot of these things wouldn't would go unrecorded or wouldn't go observed. Now, every every asshole in a basement can can find other assholes in other basements, um, and they can become a coalition. And before you know it, we normalize what they're saying to the point where we have to argue and we have to show an opposing viewpoint and we have to say, well, you know, like some people might think this and some people might think that. When um, it's it's I don't th I don't think in an, in an era in a different era that would be the case necessarily. As we discussed kind of lack of empathy and um, that, that, that road that it seems like we're sort of on, um, I don't know if we're on that road or maybe it's just kind of rearing its head. I, I, for me, case in point has been just recently that Gillette commercial and, uh, or sorry, I guess they're calling it a short film and I had just recently seen it and I thought, wow, this is just amazing. And like, you know, as a man, it was speaking to me and the, the kind of the gender that I belong to, um, regardless of sexuality or whatever it's just saying we can be better and i was like wow this is profound and i was and have been um completely blown away by the vitriol lodged at something that's just saying hey can't we be better 
um, and the how how sections of society are ensconced into who they are and the the lack of discourse We're, we can't even discourse it's just no it's bad throw it away um or no that's assault on who i am that's assault on my gender I'm, i can't listen you know and i've had you know friends like react well a, an acquaintance react that same way and um this idea that we can't um look at ourselves in a mirror and i think uh, how you combat lack of empathy how you find empathy is you say, how do I be, how can I be better? And of course that's a struggle for everyone. It's a struggle for me. It's a struggle for everybody that I know. Um, but for, I probably can say I can do that a little bit easier. I can say, Hey, how can I be better? How do I, you know, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I said the wrong thing. I need to apologize. But I think uh, as a, um, as a, a world society, I think that's very, very hard for people. It's certainly hard for people in power and it's hard for sections of society that, uh, that feel uh, at odds with, say, the con conservatives and the versus the progressives. Really, I think that there's a lot in common there. But media has said no. You're 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 against each other. Um, to kind of circle back to this, uh, it just pushes us more towards uh, this lack of empathy that I think is so important. Um, and that really that empathy ended up saving Deckard's life. There wouldn't be kind of the Blade Runner 2049 without Deckard, at least the verse, the film that we've seen, without Deckard surviving at the hands of an empathetic replicant. And really empathy saved the day. Um, and it was Deckard's empathy for Rachel and then his connection to her that saved his life. Um, and I really feel like that's even, again, kind of to to get a little bit more granular, uh, even in, in the circles that Patrick and I... Um, travel in in terms of fandom we've had to kind of do an about face not that we were falling off a cliff but we saw that cliff and we thought how do we be better than that how do we be more inclusive how do we be more empathetic to other people's ideas and to other people's passions and other people's opinions and that's really kind of what set us apart as a as a partnership as a podcast to other things um and i really again just to kind of bring it back to blade runner that that kind of long walk towards the cliff, that the 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 crumbling of humanity starts with a very small thing when you don't see someone else as human. The report would be routine retirement of a replicant, which didn't make me feel any better about shooting a woman in the back. There it was again, feeling in myself for her, for Rachel. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, I want to come back to that too, but I'm, I'm thinking um, something you said a while ago, Jamie, that I, I, I keep kind of getting distracted by the, the thought of is um, we keep kind of defaulting to text-based communication even though we don't have to. And I think there's something really interesting about that. The fact that I, I, I almost never, other than to you um, and, you know, to my immediate family, talk on the phone anymore. I, I feel like um, I, I choose to not, communicate with my voice with people when I don't have to and I don't know why I don't know what that's all about but I know it's part of some sort of a systemic shift that's happening in our society that must be related to the shifts happening in Los Angeles in 2019 and you know the dystopian 2019 of Blade Runner um, like there's a, there, it's almost like we're we're choosing the wrong 
the wrong things for ourselves as a species, but the right things for ourselves as subjective individuals. And I, I don't know, I don't know what that's all about. Um, but also, like it, it's it's interesting. Um, we we are choosing to allow controversy and uh, this this twenty four hour news cycle to be successful. Like we, I mean, the the reason why news outlets, like you were just saying, Jamie, the reason why they put us against each other all the time is because that's what we want to watch. And why is that? Like, why do we want to constantly have our suppositions? You know, why do we always want to know that we're right? Why do we always want to know somebody else is wrong? And why do we keep rewarding that to the point where we're basically stuck in a feedback loop where the things that we support are the things that are hurting us and the things that are making us less empathetic? And, you know, Jamie and I had a conversation uh, the other day. We were discussing, there, there was, uh, we basically had a, a, a potential uh, um, way to get a, a really big influx of new members to one of the groups that we have. Um, and we were discussing whether or not to do that because something that's great about building better worlds, which is sort of like the fields of Calantha, but for perfect organism is that, um, it's a relatively small, it's growing, but it's growing at a slow rate community. That's really curated for empathy and that we really try to stay on top of and make sure that people are not gatekeeping and that they're not putting each other down. And, um, what's funny is that I found myself saying, no, we can't let a huge influx of people come in because I know what happens when that happens is people start reverting to these encampments and these entrenchments. And before you know it, you have um, these like oppositional things going on. And, and I don't know, again, I'm just sort of saying this, but I don't know why we keep doing that to ourselves and why we keep choosing to do that. Like, why can't I be better? Why can't I watch something that is completely, completely objective and completely real, completely true and wh why do I keep going to these, you know, very um, opinion-based, incendiary things that make me view other people as less than me? And why do I like the way that feels? And why do I choose to go on the internet and argue about it without actually picking up the phone and calling somebody or talking to them in person about it? And why why does it feel good? On that note, one of the things that I, I've always been fascinated by in, in Blade Runner is the character of, of Eldon Tyrell. Um, and on on this subject, he seems to me so very, very different. He's the most powerful person in the film, as far as I can work out, or at least the person with the highest status in the film. And he's so very different from the politicians and the business leaders that are, inhabit my 2019. Um, and one of the things that's different about him is that he understands the importance of empathy. Um, he understands it kind of from the point of view of be of the technical significance of it because it allows him to distinguish between replicants and humans. But he also understands that this is in some sense a defect in replicants that needs to be made up. And the other thing I'd say about him is he's enormously urbane. So whereas Donald Trump is kind of very shouty and very brash and just dumb, you know, Eldon Tyrell is urbane and he's intelligent and he's cultured. Um, and my final point about him is that when he meets Roy Batty at the end of the film, he he can't give Batty what he wants, but he tries to he tries to offer him some kind of philosophical consolation. You know, the candle that burns twice as bright burns twice as long, and you have burnt so very very brightly. Um, you know, he tries to you know he moves away from the you know we've tried EMS three combination. He moves away from the science of it to the the kind of philosophy of of what Roy Batty is in his life, and that Roy Batty may not be you know he may be dying, but he has lived an incredible life. And that in itself is something to be celebrated and valued and cherished. So Eldon Tyrell strikes me as being somebody who is fascinating because he is so very different from the powerful people of our age. 
and he's also a scientist. I mean, just at the end of the day, he's he's like the great engineer of his time. And in 2049, the per, the person who wields the most powerful is another scientist, right? And that's something that is completely not the case in in our modern world and in, in the real in reality. And it's I don't know why. I don't know why this sort of populist anti intellectualism has been so powerful, but and it really has. To your point, Patrick, that you made in terms of like you're saying, why like, why do we you know why do we want to kind of not talk to each other and then we're kind of talking about like the media pitting us against each other it's what we want to see um but i also think about human history and if you go back to you know um rome ad what was their sport it was putting people in in um arenas and letting them fight each other this is an age-old thing this is something that we have found as um amusing to the upper class or the you know uh the uh, the class that isn't the those people that have to be in that arena is like oh wow watch these people tear each other up and you know you see that happening even like I, I call like essentially the learning channel which I think is totally ironic that the learning channel has that name uh, tragedy as entertainment like you see these really poor people like honey boo boo who people who are overweight people who are, who are having children like uh, nineteen and counting all of these like things that people are kind of turning on in their and they're eating popcorn or eating their dinner, and they're like, oh my God, can you believe it? We'll never be like this. When's the next episode? So this idea, I think, has always been around where I think um, the the our human nature, um, I think that the, the bad angels, I suppose I could say, of our human nature is if we let it loose, um, which it's a concept that's even hard for me to understand because I feel like even in my heart, that's not something that I pivot to, but I don't, I think for people who are only enlightened by money and class and, and fame and fortune, um, they, they look at people who are not fortunate and, and they're like, uh, wow, that's, that's interesting. That's entertainment. I mean, I, I think of films like, uh, the hunger games, it was the same thing. It was these poor people thrown into an arena to essentially kill themselves. It was a, a modern day in that, in the day of that dystopia version of Rome, uh, where they had poor people kill each other. And, uh, I, I think it's what we're seeing is sort of versions of that. Um, to your point of why we, why we uh, don't connect. Like that's something that I've tried to hold on to, like talking on the phone to someone. I would much rather hear someone's voice. I don't, I don't mind text if there's a really good established relationship, but even still, I feel like text is only, um, is minutia compared to the human experience compared to hearing someone's voice, seeing them on video or seeing them in person. It's just a very different thing. And I feel like, you know, you see all these memes all the time of like, uh, you know, they were texting and then they wanted to call me. And then you see a picture of like someone with their eyes wide, like, oh, my God, I don't answer my phone, you know. Um, and I, I think I know countless people who who don't want to answer their phone and they're like, well, why don't you text me? So it's all kind of working together. Like it's it's this it's almost like this machine or this this concoction that's not just pushing us away from each other. It's also put. It's pitting us against each other. That's the machine that's at work, and I think that that machine's always been at work. 
Um, and I think technology, as wonderful as it can be, it's just helped it along, unfortunately, because humans don't know how to do anything in balance. Going back to balance for a second, something else that we haven't touched on is one of the major themes of, of the of the book and also both films is um, the depletion of species, obviously, and, and the and the destruction of the natural world. Uh, and again, I think this is a, you know, we're not at the extreme that we're in in Blade Runner, but it's it's completely a reality that there are, that, you know, this despeciation is happening at an alarming rate. Um, and climate change is, is running rampant and causing serious issues um, in our global health. And um, it's something that, I find uh, really harrowing. That was really prescient in the in 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 both the the book and in the in the films. I would say the biggest parallel happening in our in our lives, and this is everywhere from the UK to almost every westernized kind of uh, powerful country, is is this uh, is essentially the replicants of our time, which are immigrants, and uh, that was a big deal. Uh, you know, obviously replicants aren't. They're not, you know, they're calling them replicants, but they're essentially they're people who are deemed as not people. Therefore, they're good enough to be, you know, you know, they're slaves. They they do what we want. They they we don't want to see them. We don't want to, you know, we make sure you, they're not on, you know, in any in any area of our of our kind of daily life. And you know, of course, in 2019 in Blade Runner, they're illegal, um, which you know kind of rings some bells for us. And I feel like. That's also informed society. Um, and, you know, again, this is something that, you know, Children of Men dealt with, um, uh, this idea that these people have been um, demonized into being like the worst of the worst instead of people who are fleeing from terror or they just want a good life. They want to be able to live and to you make money and take care of their families. Instead, they're being demonized and shipped away and talked about like that they're animals um, and, uh, but worse than that, this is happening on government levels. This is happening from elected officials talking about these people who have nothing like garbage. And I feel like that kind of, that parallel in Blade Runner, I, th I feel like that's the scariest thing that we're sort of experiencing right now. This real lack of empathy, um, from some important people to, you know, a mother bringing her children across a border because she's looking for another home. And obviously there's the there's the discussion of what's legal and legal ways to come across borders, all those things, which are very important. Instead, they're not even being seen as human. They're, you know, they're being put in cages. They're being, um, you know, children are being taken away from their mothers, uh, much like you would, you know, separate, you know, animals when you're selling off an animal. And I, I feel like that's his... I don't have an answer for it. I just feel like that if there's something that scares me that's parallel to Blade Runner and, 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 and films like Blade Runner, or like Children of Men, it's this demonization of a subset of people just because someone says so. Yes, I think my thought about that is that that, has, that takes on a much bigger and more sinister role in 2049, um, precisely because... 2049 or, or that that aspect of 2049 is all about the walls that we build to keep people out and how we treat people who cross um, these arbitrary barriers these are arbitrary lines in the sand um i think it's uh, I, my thought is it's a lot less present in the original blade runner um 
and and obviously there is the line in the voiceover about what Bryant may or may not mean when he uses the word skin jobs, um, or you know the, the historical parallels of that word, um, and so it's kind of referred to as a kind of subtext in the, in in Blade Runner, um, but I think. If, if I'm thinking about one of the ways in which my reality differs from the reality that is is, is depicted in 2049, it's it's that there are, there are fewer walls, as far as I can see, in, in Ridley Scott's vision of 2049. And I think one of the reasons for that is that the Los Angeles of Blade Runner is is it's depopulated at the fringes. So you've got the entirety of the Bradbury building, which appears just to house, you know, Sebastian and his creations. And in Deckard's apartment building, he's got this massive apartment, it's just him in it. And again, you never really see anyone else in his apartment building. Um, so yeah, so I think one of the ways in which it's different is, and again, this goes back to um, Philip K. Dick's book, the idea that Earth is being depopulated and depopulated and depopulated. Um, whereas obviously that is not true of the world we live in. So, yeah, so I think walls and the status of migrants and the status of refugees and the status of quote-unquote illegals, all of that I think is very important to us today, and we can see that in 2049, but I don't think it's quite as present in, in Blade Runner, the original movie. Well, here's a question for us, um, and I don't want, like, and I'm not looking for, I mean, obviously everyone will answer differently, but I'm not looking for, like, a, oh, well, we just got to do this and everything will be okay, but really, where where do we go? Like, how 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 does society not end up like Blade Runner twenty nineteen? Because even though we're not there, we're certainly on that path. And I know we've discussed this a lot. There have been articles, countless articles, being released almost on a daily basis because we get uh, notifications about whether whenever Blade Runner is mentioned and just saying where are we as a society? And uh, we're we are certainly on that road. And I think the 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 uh, superfluous things like replicants, um, we might not see those types of kind of humanoid things, robots or whatever, maybe for another 25 years or, or so. But the 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 themes of Blade Runner, the the dystopia, the disconnection, the uh, the loneliness, the lack of empathy, we I would say we're more than just on that road. We've been on that road for a while. Is is it going to change? Well, I think what you said before is true, Jamie, that um, this road is not new, and it's also, I don't even think it's a road, I think it's us. I really do. I think, you know, th there's a reason why some people were chosen to be in gladiatorial combat, and some people weren't. The people who were fighting and dying in the Colosseum were not, you know, the ruling class of, of their era in Rome, you know? Um, they, were the, they were the poor people, they were the lower down people, most of them were slaves and freedmen, and... Uh, and there's a reason why we watch them fight. There's a reason why Honey Boo Boo. By the way, I should point out that TLC is no longer actually the Learning Channel. Just like just like KFC is not Kentucky Fried Chicken. They actually had their name changed legally, which is probably a good thing. But just to TLC. It's just TLC now. Yeah. Yeah. It's also a fucking. It's called the Laughing Channel. That's shit. what it is. Oh god, I hate it. Yeah, that it's it's just awful. It's an awful, awful channel. It is. It is the worst of us. Which is crazy because when I was a kid, I was obsessed with the Discovery with the with the Learning Channel. It was like you know documentaries about nature and whatever. Um. Again, that's the that's the, the you know the hand of the market um, that we've talked about so many times on here, guiding that in that direction. But um, my point being, like the, when we watch Honey Boo Boo, you know, we're not watching the the ruling class of our society. Although we you know we remunerate them like they are, but at the end of the day, they're 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 poor people. You know, they're downtrodden people that don't have a that we look at like circus creatures. You know, you know, I was talking to my wife tonight about Kim Kardashian about how. Um, 
she told me that she had followed Kim Kardashian on Twitter or, or on Instagram at one point. And I was, I was sort of asking like, why? Like what, what's the, and I'm not saying that because I'm trying to like prove that I'm, you know, enlightened or something. It's just, I, I don't, I, I don't personally have that impulse, but so many people do. Um, Micah doesn't, but, but, but at one point out of curiosity, she followed Kim Kardashian. And I was thinking, it's so funny that like this person who we, for some reason have decided is a celebrity has like 150 million social media followers and has truly global influence and basically has an, an, an empire. You know, like she's become more than a person. She's become the, the figurehead of, of an entire enterprise. And why? And I and why do we do this to ourselves? Like why do we just choose these random people to look at and, to, and then we just revel in their downfall and we just love when they have affairs and their marriages fall apart and we love when they get in car accidents and they get disfigured and they don't look beautiful anymore and we like, we just fucking... We eat that up, you know? People loved Michael Jackson getting burned in the Pepsi thing, and then they love his vitiligo shit, and pe people... This is just us. So I guess my, my point being that the, the ways in which we act that way might change over time, but I don't think it's actually a trajectory. I don't think it's a point A to point B. I think it's just the ways in which we see the, the baser parts of human nature winning out over the better parts of human nature, and a lot of the greatest art hopefully until the end of time for our species, until the solar death of the universe, which if we make it that long, you know, which I sort of doubt, but maybe, um, you know, the greatest art is the art that seeks to, to help us to, to, to be better, you know, that shows us a mirror. And what's great about Blade Runner is that that, that mirror is, um, is eerily accurate and yet wonderfully strange. It's like, uh, it's, it's, it's just different enough that we can see ourselves accurately in it. And yet it's accurate enough that we can see the, the wonderful imagination that was put into it and we can really appreciate it just as a piece of art as well, you know? Mm, yeah, no, I, I would, I, I think in, in terms of how we avoid becoming the dystopia of 2019, um, I think there are some keys in Blade Runner. There, there are, you know, there, there's the world of Blade Runner is a dreadful place, but there are a, <clears throat> there are moments where humanity breaks through. Um, so I think first of all, it's about kinship, as Roy Bathy says. I think we have to recognise that we are each other's kin, and that yeah. So I think one of the problems with Kim Kardashian, if, forgive me, Kim, sorry if you're listening. One of the problems with that approach to life is that what she's doing is she's making a commodity of herself. She's commodifying herself, so she ceases to be somebody who is the kin of another person, and she becomes, in a sense, an artifact of herself. Um, so yeah. So the first thing I say is kinship. The other kind of the, the other kind of weird hero of twenty of twenty nineteen is Gaff, because it's Gaff at the end who says, you know, too bad she won't live, but then again, who does? Um, and the thing I love about Gaff is he breaks the rules for his friend. Uh, my general feeling is the world would be a better place if we all broke the rules for our friends a bit more often. Or when I say we, the, the, the kind of little person does that. Sadly, our, our leaders now, rulers, they're breaking the rules for their friends all the time, but there's a lot of people at the bottom of the system who are just running the machine to use Jamie's phrase who are just running the machine and are not questioning the rules and breaking the, the rules um and i guess the last thing is i think we should be aware oh sorry we should beware of those occasions where we turn the leaders of our society into gods um and just thinking about the opening sequence of blade runner and these two incredible ziggurats they've always reminded me of the tower of babel and the tower of babel of course is is the moment in in the bible where human beings for the first time try and become gods and of course that's what tyrell's up to so yeah so 
I'm one of the worrying trends I think in 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 the modern world is to put people on pedestals and to assume that they have superhuman strength or superhuman intelligence or or the ability to, or the, the general feeling that we are looking for the strong man. So to avoid that, so yeah, recognize we are kin. Um, break the rules for our friends. You know, avoid turning people into gods. Those would be the three moral messages I take from Blade Runner. I think they're good moral messages. And I think maybe maybe an answer or because I don't think there is a subjective answer. Um, but I think it's, it is personal, like, you know, just what you said, Robin, it's very, it's kind of these kind of quiet decisions that we make in, in the privacy of, of our own lives and our, are in the middle, in the midst of our friends um, that kind of reverberate out, whether it's treating people like human, realizing that we live in this society where we are actually, of the same species, we are human. And that, and because of that, that's why we are related. That's what makes us family. Um, and some of that kind of probably might sound cliche or like a sound bite, but I really truly believe it. I think um, the moments in my life, um, the moments of connection in my life, the best connections that I've ever made um, uh, with my best friends have been because you fully see humanity despite flaw, um, despite flaw they see in you, despite flaw they, I see in them. Um, and it's kind of an, an embracing of that. And I know that's, it, it's an easy thing to say, but as you kind of go up the ladder, people become conglomerates, conglomerates become corporations, corporations become government, and then you have the figurehead for that. So things start, you know, then you have churches and all of those things and uh, how that works and, um, the loss of the individual. And I think that's another thing that maybe we can talk about another time because it's getting a little bit later. But um, I, I think that uh, this high, there's been a lot said about kind of the, the attention on the individual has kind of lessened. It's kind of broken up the community and really the strongest societies in world history have been communities have been Mayan communities uh, Native American communities uh, in 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 this country, um, but when we break away from that, not that individuality is a bad thing, um, but I think you can be an individual in the context of a community and be strengthened by that. I mean, I grew up in a commune, and it, you know, I the bonds that we share and still share are amazing, absolutely amazing, and I think, uh, or I, I fully believe that uh, all of what we've discussed, um, what builds what builds societies, what builds healthy societies, is the sense that everyone belongs. It's the sense that you're a part of a community. And I see you, you see this nowhere, not to say that Japan is not without their problems, they have problems, but they're a pretty tight-knit community with a strong sense of traditional culture, and they're thriving. Um, the countries that aren't, that are struggling right now, like America, like the UK, we don't have that. Um, and I, I think that there's a lot to inform us there. So that's kind of my long answer. Well, I think it, it, I don't want to be, you know, totally nihilistic and say that there's nothing we can do about it. I, I, I think something else that we could focus on is, um, I see, I'm, I'm trying to find a non-problematic way to, I'm, I'm trying to find ways to put it that people won't bristle, but the idea is redistributing power. I think we live in a world that really um, rewards 
the stripping of other people's power by those in power, and then um, they get more money and they get more influence. And then before you know it, you have these disenfranchised people who can't break out of cycles of poverty and cycles of abuse because they're um, they're sort of they're subjugated by the culture in which they live, and they can't break out of that because they don't have the power to do it. And I think if you know, it's it's easy for us to sit here as three people who all in different ways, you know, wield some degree of, of power, you know, I mean, we're all men for one thing. Um, you know, we're all somewhere in the middle class range. We're all able to like sleep. We know where we're going to sleep at night. Um, you know, we're healthy. We're all, you know, young to middle-aged. We're, um, you know, I, I feel like it's one thing for us to say, you know, we should all hold hands and do a Coca-Cola commercial and, you know, and I'm not, I don't, I don't mean to poke fun at that because I, I agree with you, Jamie, and I agree with Robin's kinship thing too. Obviously, that's the goal, right? Like, obviously, that's what we want. But to get there, we have to fix the ways in which we distribute power and rights in our society. And I think we see that every day with the Me Too movement, with the ways in which men subjugate women, and the ways in which men wield power in society, the ways in which we reward toxic masculinity on social media, and the ways in which we, um, you know, we always tune in to see what somebody like the president of the United States says on television even uh, even though we know he's lying and even though we know that he's doing it basically um to appeal to to his base which is fueled by a lot more complicated things than just holding on to power but that's i think definitely part of it you know there's a reason why there's a rise in nationalist movements and there's a reason why there's um you know like it's no longer so taboo to talk about something like white power in the united states i mean obviously it's looked down upon but it's it's becoming strangely normalized in a lot of ways. It, it's it's something people talk about openly, you know, and um, and it's because it's because I think we're becoming more aware of divisions of power in our society, and the people who wield that power are becoming increasingly afraid of losing it. And then those of us who do wield some of that power, who are more aware of it, um, are feeling increasingly uncomfortable about it, and it's leading to these divisions again. So again, I, I, this is like such a long-winded way to put it, and it's not going anywhere. But the idea is that, you know, I, I mean, I, I work. So I work for Oxfam um, in my day job, as you both know, uh, and it's a nonprofit, and and we we really seek to address these issues of power imbalances around the world. And I I don't I don't I find it kind of kind of problematic to say that we're trying to empower people. It's more like we're trying to help them to access the power that they had that was stripped from them at some point. And if you can fix that. If you can fix power, you can fix poverty. And if you can fix poverty and you can empower people, then you can fix all of these divisions that we're talking about. But to get to that, you have to break rules over and over and over again, just like Robin was saying. And breaking rules is really fucking hard, especially in a world where that is not rewarded whatsoever when it's um, you know in the interest of poor people or of impoverished people. And... Um, you know, we talk a lot about immigrants to the United States and, and about illegal immigrants, which is obviously a huge um, issue right now and I think is a, a wonderful uh, metaphor through which to, to look at Blade Runner. But also, people who live in sub-Saharan Africa who don't have access to um, preventative treatment for AIDS or for Ebola or for infectious disease and are dying in their 20s and 30s um, completely destitute and sick. And uh, Or, you know, when there's, a, when there's a, you know, like a few years ago there was this just this incredible famine um, in the Horn of Africa that killed millions and millions and millions and millions of people, and we couldn't do anything about it. It was like, 
I mean, I'm not saying we couldn't do it. I'm, Oxfam was working on it, but I'm saying as a as a as a society, as a global culture, we were so caught up with our own individual problems, like we were so trapped in our own news cycles that we allow millions of people to die because we don't see them as people. You know, we don't interact with them. They're abstract. They're the replicants on Mars. You know, um, and when they and when they're in our faces. When they come to the United States, when we see a commercial that makes us upset, when we see a Syrian refugee child dying on a beach, a picture um, really gets me. I'm like, I'm, I, you, know, you guys probably know the picture I'm talking about, but like um, every time I think about it, I, I get kind of choked up. When we see pictures like that, when we see what's happening in Yemen right now, um, it really, really, really hurts us. And that hurt is so fucking important, and it's so hard. But it's, in in my opinion, if there is anything we can do, it is we can hurt, we can feel it. You know, we can feel the the distance and power between what we have and what the family of that child lying face down on a beach has, whose house has been bombed and his fucking um, boat is capsized, you know, and then is turned away from safe shelter because he doesn't um, belong in this arbitrary country border and uh so i i think i think i think that's it I, th I think to me a key is to hurt and again going back to what robin was saying part of why roy is a really heroic figure in, in a in a wonderfully weird way to so many of us is because he's aware of that because he feels the hurts he he fucking shoves nails through his hands he he chooses to feel that pain because it keeps him alive and it keeps him aware of his own mortality and it keeps him aware of uh, the plight of, of his fellow replicants and what they've sacrificed. And he comes to, back to Earth as an illegal immigrant, obviously, and he's hunted down. And um, and instead of, uh, you know, being captured, I, I mean, well, he, he is, you know, ultimately he's, he, he dies, obviously. But um, but but along the way, he, he really spreads um, redemptive life through this idea of like, don't don't waste what you have, you know, like Deckard has so much why not do something with it and why not allow yourself to feel pain or why not allow yourself to fall in love and why not allow yourself to fight for what's right and you look at what Decker does in 2049 and it's exactly that you know he does the hardest thing imaginable he leaves his child behind you know well he, he leaves his world behind first with Rachel they have a child and then he leaves to protect that child and he lives in seclusion in this horrible quasi-monastic nuclear existence alone and old and destitute and yet having done the right thing and the hard thing and that i think is how we become human again as a as a global culture we do the hard thing and the right thing consistently and we allow ourselves to feel the pain that we're constantly trying to push down with this inundation of entertainment with this you know netflix streaming constantly with our text-based communication with all of these these decisions that we make to insulate ourselves from the pain that we know is reverberating around us every single day but which we won't let inside Absolutely. Um, I think well, I, 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 I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, and one of the things that I took from one of my other favorite dystopias, which is 1984 by George Orwell, and which I think is, is picked up in Blade Runner, is that the people who understand the world best are the people who are at the very bottom of the hierarchy. 
Um, and this is something George Orwell says in 1984, and I think we can see it in Blade Runner, in that the people in Blade Runner who, the, the person who understands Deckard the best is Rachel, and she understands him when she has lost her status and when she's now um, a female replicant and therefore at the very bottom of the hierarchy. And the other person who understands society who understands Blade Runner, the world of Blade Runner, really, really well is Roy Batty, again, at the bottom of the hierarchy. So, yeah, so I'd, I'd, I'd want to, I'd, I, I, I completely agree with what Patrick is saying. And I think it's incumbent on people who, who have privilege and who have power to listen to and to value the voices and, and of people who are at the bottom of hierarchies simply because they understand the world better because of their structural position. Um, I know that we could probably talk about these things all night, and I think uh, this conversation, you know, we're, as as we move into our series, uh, a 700 layer cake, the Cold of Blade Runner, will certainly it's going to be a little bit more of like kind of the following. But we're going to touch upon the uh, the effects of this film uh, of 2019 specifically, and uh, I, I think we'll probably end up moving back into the space of some of these conversations. Um, I, I don't think that they're going to find an end by any means, uh, certainly. Uh, but one, one last thing that I, I thought, uh, my last, at least my last statement would be that I think, um, the hard thing, um, and you said Patrick about kind of hurting for your friends. Um, I think sometimes the hardest thing for a society to do is to look in a mirror, but oftentimes the only way they're going to change is if they look into a mirror. And I think maybe what's happening right now isn't trajectory. Like you said, it's just we have been presented with mirrors and those mirrors are happening all over the, the world. Um, this is who we are. This is who, this is what's been important to you. This is who you've elected because that's important to you. Um, now look in this mirror and is this what you want to see? Is this what you want to see for this amount of time? Now, if you don't want to see it, it's time to change it. Yes, it's ugly, but you helped create it. And I think uh, everything that's within that that mirror that we all we all are seeing in all our various ways in every kind of pocket of this of this world uh, are, are posing some very big questions to us, and uh, it's I think the where we're headed uh, the the answer is and uh, how we answer those questions. So, and I just want I just want to personally close by saying I think that the the reason Blade Runner is a great film and the reason why Demander's Dream of Electric Sheep is so important and the reason why Twenty Forty Nine is such a masterpiece. Um, is because of this, like, is because we're having conversations about it at late at night. And, um, and we are like just completely uh, in awe of what it's able to get us to, to talk about. And, you know, there are so many layers of greatness to, to Blade Runner 2019. Like there's, there's so much to talk about in terms of its vision of the future and it's, and it's world building and the performances and the characters. But at the end of the day, Jamie, like you're saying, it is, it is the perfect mirror because it's just like us enough that we recognize ourselves, but it's not so like us that we see it as reality. We see it as an al- as an allegory, and I think it's it's. I don't want to say it's incumbent upon artists to to do that, but in a way, I kind of think it is. I kind of think that's one of the main reasons art exists, is to allow us to look within ourselves and um, and to come away with deeper knowledge. And um, and at the end of the day, I think the reason why I come back to Blade Runner so so much in my own life. Is because it's the perfect mirror. It's it's something that like you know, 
like we've been talking about this whole episode, even just in, in the ways in which it depicts the future, it's something recognizable. We can see we can see crossovers between the world of Blade Runner and our own world, but it's not the same, so it allows us to look at it a little bit more deeply. And and that open endedness, I think, is a, is it, it, between the, the space between the open endedness of that reality and the reality we experience every day is where the that incredibly important process of allowing ourselves to hurt and allowing ourselves to introspect and to see ourselves honestly happens. And I think um, that's why Blade Runner will always be a great film is because it will always be relevant. Compared to everything that's just been said, this is a very silly thing to say. Um, but I remember when I first noticed that Blade Runner was set in 2019 um, and I was probably 13 years old or something. And I'm just staggered that I'm here now. Do you see what I mean? Because back in back in 1987 or whatever, when I was 13 years old and I first watched Blade Runner, 2019 seemed about as far away as, you know, I don't know, Jupiter or Pluto or something like that. So <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just staggered that we got here, you know. Um, because I, I remember I, re- I read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and is, th- is that set in like 1999 or something? I can't remember. I think it might be set I think in so. Place. And I remember thinking, oh yeah, that, that's, that is, that's, a, that's, that's in the near future. I can imagine 1999. Um, but 2019, that's, you know, it's a, whole not, it's a whole different century. So yeah, so my banal and, and somewhat um, trite um, thought that I end on is, yeah, it's uh, it felt like a world away and when i look back to the 80s the 80s now feels like a world away but one of the reasons for me that blade runner is a great movie is because in a sense it's timeless it's kind of in the 80s and it's kind of in the future and it's kind of the past and it's kind of the present and it's it's all of those things and you know, I think you know Ridley Scott is a genius for making a film which is which is all which is the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. Yeah, and and, and, and just uh, for clarification, I think Androids was I think it was ninety two, and then they revised it to be twenty twenty one, because Ooh, I, I guess they were, they were yeah. when they did a new edition of it. But it, it is it is crazy. Like we hit these milestones. I mean, to me, it feels like you know the year like two thousand, which I think going back to Metropolis, I think that's when that was set, and. Um, and I remember like hitting 2000 and being like, wow, this does not, this does not look like Fritz Long right now. Um, and then now that is so long ago, like we're two decades past that now, you know, and it just makes you think like, what, what are we going to be talking about in 20 years from today? You know, and, 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 and also how relevant I'm sure Blade Runner will be then too, because like you said, it exists atemporally and yet it feels very specific and it's, it's such a masterpiece that it can balance those two things. Last thing I'll leave, leave us with is. I'm not a fan of the theatrical cut, uh, and I know there's a lot of people who are in terms of uh, the voiceover, you know, that kind of classic um, film noir narration. What I will say, though, is a lot of what we're discussing is in that narration, Deckard's internal monologue with himself, um, his internal monologue with what he saw uh, uh, Roy do in terms of saving his life. Um, so these conversations, so, to some degree, on a smaller level, uh, about kind of who we are, wh- where are we going? Deckard and the writers were having those same conversations then. So it's going to be, I, I haven't seen the theatrical cut in probably 20 years. It is incumbent upon me, for sure, to kind of look at it again and see really what was going on in Deckard's headspace and, and the headspace of the writers, because I think that there's a lot there. But see, but again, what I think makes it less powerful is that we're getting 
told what he's thinking about. You know? No, I know. I, I agree. I agree. I'm I, just I, I know that... you agree, but I'm just verbalizing. I think part of why, because I just watched it again uh, about a year ago, the theatrical cut, and I, I hadn't seen it since I was probably a, a teenager. And um, and I was like, and I was I was realizing that it was so much less um, impactful because instead of acting as this sort of quasi cipher for me as an audience member, Deckard became something way too specific and way too finite. And wasn't as like it, it. It would be like putting dates, you know, or, or putting putting real world technology in dystopian Los Angeles with uh, something recognized. So, so we know, like, oh, this actually was being made in the early '80s. You know, the fact that they avoided doing that, I think, is is part of why it feels like it kind of could be anywhere at any time. And when you do that with a character like Deckard, you know, um, I think it definitely impacts things. But you're right; it's a very different film, you know, and there's a lot to be said for that. I would say that uh, that's a good place to end it. Uh, thank you, Robin, so much for coming on, for staying up till, was it, almost 5 in the morning now? Um, or it four? is 3.51 a.m. Uh, in Cambridge, yeah. yeah. So there we go. Yeah. You, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. We'll thank try you, not to do thank this you to so you much. When, when you come back. It's always so, a pleasure. It's you always you better come back. Yeah, Robin will be back with us for our new series. So stay put, everybody. He'll be here. I look yeah. forward to it. All right. Thanks. Thank you so much. Have a great night, everybody. Thanks, guys. Okay, bye. Blessings. Gaff had been there and let her live. Four years, he figured. He was wrong. Tyrell had told me Rachel was special. No termination date. I didn't know how long we'd have together. Who does? find out more about our podcast, go to www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is also available for listening or download through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, and Podbean.